Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you'll move on this listener right now in your gentle, loving, powerful, and merciful way as they listen to this message from All Nations Church in Tallahassee. Amen. Last week, you know, when I get feeling better, and all of you know this, you've heard this a hundred times, I start doing things that probably are a little beyond what I should, and I had one of those incidents this week, and when I, our son-in-law, Matt, offered to speak this morning, I took him up on it very heartily. So this morning, we're glad to have Matt and Mindy uh, here with us. They're all the way from Harlingen, Texas. Matt's coming to bring the word to you this morning. Would you just uh, give him a round of applause and show him you appreciate him? Glad that he's here today. Matt and I go way, way back. I think it was in 1985, I preached a revival for his dad at his church. Matt was probably 10, 11, 12 years old, somewhere in there. 13. 13, all right. So we have a long history, and uh, and then I ran into Matt again in Oklahoma City a lot of years later. Said to my daughter, Mindy, Mindy, I met the neatest guy. And she said, no thanks, Dad. She wasn't going to have any of that. But would you know it, about a year later, someone else. Oh, yeah, that's right. So about a year later, someone else introduced them, and here we are today. Dad can't do that, but a friend can, right, Mindy? All right, here we go. Matt, God bless you. Uh, bring the word to us this morning. I'm actually glad neither of us took you up on your offer to go on a date because now when we're fighting, we can't blame you for setting us up. <laughs> uh, there's a story of a mom and daughter who are headed to the country club to go eat lunch with the mom's friends. The, the daughter is right at 30. The mom is in her uh, kind of late 50s, early 60s. And, and as they're headed there, the mom looks at the daughter and says, hey, you know, all of my friends are going to be here from our close circle over the last 15 years. I need to tell them what's happening and what's going on with me. So bear with me. Let me tell them the whole story. Well, what was happening is the mom had a degenerative illness. Then the doctors had given her just a, a few months to live. And she wanted to pull all of her friends together who had been supporting her through this and just say, hey, thank you. This is the final prognosis. I want to let you know what's going on. Pray with me, but know that I'm a Christian. I'm going to a better place. So as they sit down, they begin to have lunch. Everyone's asking how she's doing. She says, I'll get to that in a minute. As they begin to wrap up lunch, she starts to tell them, this is what the doctors have said. Here's what's going on. She never fully had told anybody what the illness was, and she wasn't going to do that at this time. But she had said, the doctors have been good to me. They've taken care of me. I've led a good life. I know I'm going to see Jesus when I pass away. And of course, there's tears flowing, as, as you can imagine. She then looks at him and says... But I also want you to know that things at home are awful. My husband is an absolute jerk. And the daughter turns and looks at her mom and the mom says, let me finish. Begins to explain that things aren't good. I'd love to tell you from the outside, they look great, but you all know how we hide things at home. We're broke. The life insurance policies that we had are completely gone on both me and my husband. His job looks like it's going well, but it's not. The house we had on the coast, on the Pacific in Cabo San Lucas, he sold that house to pay off gambling debt. The house we have up in the mountains in Vermont, it's gone for, again, gambling debt. And my fear is he's cheating on it. But I don't want you to focus on that, please. For the next several months, I'm going to spend it with my daughter, her, her husband, uh, my grandchildren, Things are going to be good for us. I love you. And they began to come around and hug and cry and support her and tell her, we love you. We love you. We will keep this to ourselves, but we love you and we're going to miss you. Well, when they get done, the daughter is sitting there speechless, just shaking her head. She looks at her mom and says, after everyone's left and said, can I ask you a question? She said, yeah. She said, why did you tell them that? And she said, well, I wanted them to know I love them and I wanted them to know what was happening as we get close to the end that I'm not going to be here much longer. I wanted to say something they'd remember. And she goes, no, why'd you say all that stuff about dad? Why'd you air our laundry here? And by the way, is the house gone? Is the life insurance empty? And the mom goes, oh, no, 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 no. None of that stuff's true. The daughter looks at her and goes, then why'd you tell them? And she said, because when I'm gone, I don't want any of those ladies marrying your father. <laughs> she wanted to say something they would remember. That's my goal this morning, except what I'm going to tell you is true. Um, let me start off by saying thank you for indulging this. I know behind the scenes, Yvonne was telling Pop, 
do not let him say anything up in front of our people. Um, and I can understand why. Uh, this is the first time I've ever been in a church where someone said anything remotely similar to don't vote for being saved. Vote for shave. I, I was like, where she is, you don't want people to be saved. And, oh no, she's talking about the beard, shave or save. Okay, well I gotta admit, just to irritate Yvonne, I put a hundred bucks in the uh, save it, the keep it, uh, just so she, just to irritate Yvonne, just a little. Um, I'm kidding about that, kinda. Uh, but we, I will tell you as an extension, we love you. Thank you for taking care of Pop. They're, they're Pop and Vaughn to my kids. So they're Pop and Vaughn to us, I call him dad hoping that he lets me ride the motorcycle and shoot the guns every once in a while. Uh, but thank you uh, for being good to them. We hear from them when they come to see us. They love you. They have good things to say about you, and that's because you treat them well. And thank you for doing that. Um, the better you treat them, the less likely it is they move in with us. So please, <laughs> please continue to treat them well. Um, I, I got to admit, when... When the times that we get to come here, it's kind of fun for me to drive by Florida State University. Uh, I, maybe I should make a qualification. My accent, if, in case you're wondering, I was born in Oklahoma, like that. Uh, grew up in Oklahoma, spent most of my adult life in Texas. So now, like you said, you don't have to figure out where's he from. Um, I'm a Sooner, but if you know anything about college football, and I was talking to Isaiah, where'd he go? I was talking to him about this. and. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was nothing to cheer about with Oklahoma football. Being a Sooner was kind of depressing, um, similar to kind of current times with Florida State. I get that. But during the late 80s, early, early mid-90s, late 90s, I watched a lot of Florida State football because they were always on TV and it was fun to watch. And I remember all the names, you know, the Deion Sanders, Leroy Butler, Derek Brooks. I remember the pain wide left and wide right, but it was fun to watch. But I also have to say thank you to the Florida State Nation because you allowed us to beat you in 2000. And that was when we won our one last national championship. So thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, let's dive in a little bit. I'm going to run through three different stories that we find in Scripture. And it, they start off by using the phrase, if I were a king all had moments where we begin to walk through and think, what would it be like if I was in charge? If I could be in control, what would it be like? You don't have to raise your hand, but if you've ever had that thought, I want you to go to the next thought and think to yourself, what would you do if you were finally in charge? If you were finally in charge at work, at school, on the team, in your, in your group of military people, if at home you were finally in charge, I dream of that all the time. What would I do if I were finally in charge? It, it, would, it would be miserable because I'm better together and I'm better following in some cases. But we find this in numerous places throughout Scripture. And I want to explore some of this. And when I want to look at three stories. The first one I want to look at is with King Zedekiah, Zedekiah who was king of Judah. Now, we find this passage in Jeremiah's chapter 30 through 39. You can look this up if you want. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this story digging into the scriptures. Because during this passage, Jeremiah 30 through 39, there's a lot of prophecy from Jeremiah over the situation that's happening. But I want to unpack the story for you for just a minute. And the story goes like this. King Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of the Babylonian Empire, which was an enormous empire in the Old Testament. We read this all throughout the Old Testament. When King Nebuchadnezzar would capture another kingdom, he would take the king captive. He wouldn't kill, he wouldn't wipe out everything. As was the days during those times, when a kingdom would capture another kingdom, they would take a lot of the people captive, but most of those kingdoms would kill the king. Most of those that attacked, they would kill the king. Let's get rid of the ruling family. Let's knock them out. We don't want anyone from that ruling family coming up. Well, here's what was interesting. King Nebuchadnezzar, he would take the king and turn him into a trophy. He would collect kings. Now wrap your mind around this for a minute. You collect baseball cards. You collect coins. You collect guns. You collect... Keep doing it, by the way. Um, you collect guns. You collect cars. You collect stamps you collect 
Um, fun fungo pops? Is that what you two collect sitting on the front row? They're my son. Here, right now, they're, they're dazed out because they're going, oh, great, Dad's talking. Um, fungo pops, right? These little fungo pop characters. I don't understand it, but they collect it. I fund it, apparently. Uh, but you collect all this. Well, imagine talking about all the things you collect and somebody in the crowd goes, oh, I, I collect people. Well, he would collect kings and then he would parade them out to kind of celebrate. Look what we did. Not celebrating the king, celebrating what he did. This was King Nebuchadnezzar. He would celebrate this. Now, we're talking about Zedekiah who became king of Judah. The previous king was a man named Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was only 18 years old when he was captured. When you try and wrap your mind around, man, an 18-year-old being a king? Keep in mind, lifespan wasn't as long. I also think they learned more maybe by the time they were 18 during that phase because they were working in a field when they were 7, 8, 9 years old. So by the time you were 18, that might have been half your lifespan. But at the age of 18, Jehoiakim was taken by King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar also grabbed 10,000 of the ruling elite, the wealthy class, and brought them into Babylon as servants and slaves. Now, you may wonder, well, why is that significant? Ever heard of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? This is where they came from. This is what King Nebuchadnezzar, this is what the Babylonian Empire would do. They would pull these people in. Well, King Zedekiah became king of Judah at the age of 21. And he had seen all the things that King Jehoiakim had done. And Jehoiakim was not a godly king. We, it's interesting we find through the, the split tribe of Israel, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, that there weren't a lot of kings that followed closely to what God wanted them to follow. They didn't follow the commands that God had laid out. Jehoiakim was one of those. He ignored the advice of the prophets. If, if you grew up in sun, going to church and going to Sunday school, or you spent any time in church over the last 10 years, you've studied some of this. If you're, if you're here this morning or watching online and this is foreign to you, the... The kingdom of Israel, even when it split, there were prophets that were essentially advisors to the king. And the advisor during this period was Jeremiah, which is why it's found in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah would have told Zedekiah all of the things that Jehoiakim got wrong. Now here's the other thing. Zedekiah would have seen it because he was related to Jehoiakim. We know how that goes. It usually follows in a lineage, right? A, a, a royal family. So he knew all these things that had happened. He saw what had gone wrong. And he knew that the Lord was displeased with how things had went because Jeremiah would have told him over and over and over. But when Zedekiah became king, and I'm going to break for just a minute here in the sound booth. Okay. He acted on, he acted on this, this, this thing that we all have in us. And it was this thing, and I'm going to describe it on video in just a minute. I'm going to play a video for you of an old hymn, an old song that was recorded years ago. And it kind of perfectly illustrates this desire we have to all be in charge. If you've got that queued up, go ahead and hit start. I've never seen a king or beast with quite so little hair. I'm gonna be the main event like no king was before. I'm pushing up, I'm looking down, I'm working on my God, that's far rather an inspiring thing. years ago, we all have this desire to say, I can't wait to be the king. Who in here right now, you work for a company, you work in the military, you're a teacher, and there is at least one person who is over you in a supervisory role. Let me see your hand. Yvonne, you should be raising your hand right now. Yeah. Okay. Let's be clear. <laughs> 
We all have, I have that. I will admit, and online, and if anyone I work with watches this, I've, I've had the thought, man, if they'd just get out of the way and I could take over, this things would be a whole lot different. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on that if you've admitted that, because it's possible you might go to church with your boss. I don't want you to you know, admit that and, and have them see it. But we all have this insatiable desire to be the king. Have you ever dreamed of being king? That's the question I'll ask you. Here's the follow-up to it. Do you see this distinction in your kids? That your kids think, oh, when I move out. Yeah, they're all laughing. Hudson, remember, everyone's laughing about that comment right now. <laughs> we all have this desire to say, I want to be in charge. I want to. Well, we see it in our kids. Well, where does it come from? Have you ever thought about that? Where does this uncontrollable urge to be in charge come from? Look in Genesis 3. And again, you can, you can open up your Bible. I'll reference this really, really quickly. But in Genesis chapter 3 is where we find that Adam, who had been given all authority in the garden to name animals. And if you think about it, what, a, what an awesome privilege to name animals. Think about how he started out. He started out really zealous. Hippopotamus, giraffe, elephant. He gets tired close to the end and he starts going, dog can't ant, uh, fly. But he, he gets this privilege to name all the animals. God says, hey, you need a helper. I'll give you a helper. He takes a piece from Adam and magically he wakes up and, oh, wow, divine intervention. I have a beautiful wife. But in Genesis 3, we see that that wasn't quite enough. But why wasn't it enough? God only said you can't do one thing. And what was it? Eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what the serpent tell him? What did the enemy tell him? The enemy told him, God doesn't want you to do that because you'll be smarter than him. And so, as he tells them that, you'll be smarter than God, they bit. That was supposed to be a pun. That was to be a little more humorous, but they bit, get the apple, they bit into it. They were told, hey, you'll be smarter than God. We run into trouble when we allow the enemy to convince us that we're smarter than our Creator. When we're in a leadership position, if we allow ourselves, we begin to think, okay, I know I've got some authority here. Let me see how well I can use that authority to further my cause. If you're a business leader in any, in any way, shape, any form or fashion, please take notes on this this morning. I, some, of you, you, some of you may or may not know this, whether how close you are to, to Pop and Vaughn, but I don't preach for a living. I'm not a pastor. I work in the business world and I see this all the time. I even see it in myself. And the times where God checks me is when he says, why do you want to be in charge? What's your reason for wanting to run that department? What's your reason for wanting to grow? And every time I begin to go, well, I'd like to take bigger vacations. I'd like to buy something else. I'd like to put more in retirement. God checks me and says, wait a minute. Didn't I say I'd take care of you? What's your reason? Let me guide you. You operate under my authority. Let's get back to King Zedekiah for just a minute. Judah was surrounded by the Babylonians. Keep in mind, the uh, empire of Judah was captured. They took Jehoiakim. He's now a trophy in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Nebuchadnezzar actually allowed Zedekiah to be king. He said, I'm not going to capture you, but you're going to become one of our provinces. You're going to become one of our places. In other words, you're going to pay rent, Zedekiah. This is your homeland. This was the land where everything started for you. This is the land. This is yours. But you're going to pay me rent. You know what Zedekiah said? Fine. Get out of here and I'll pay you rent. The minute Nebuchadnezzar is gone, he tells all these people, we're not paying nothing. This is our land. And you know what Jeremiah starts telling him? Wait a minute. God has said... God told me to tell you, if you'll submit to your earthly authority, I'll restore your kingdom as it sits, and eventually I'll restore you to the throne of Judah. But you've got to submit to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, do that over, over, over and over in your mind for a minute. So you want me to submit to an ungodly king. You want me to pay rent. I mean, they, they went into the temple, God. They went into the temple that Solomon built. 
that David planned for, that you had promised. And they began to take gold and they began to take all of the value. They took all of our priests. I mean, let's be honest, those priests weren't really living for you anyway. But they took all the priests. They took everybody. You want me to serve him? And the prophet tells him again, just submit to his authority. Well, unfortunately, Zedekiah didn't do it. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. From this point moving forward, and I'm not a Bible scholar, I'm, I'm, I'm not even the expert preacher that can dive deep into Scripture and find these passages. Thank goodness for the internet and a concordance that I could dive a little deeper. But somewhere around 400 years or so, they were without a king. They were really ruled by others. He was the last king of Judah. Israel, the kingdom of Israel, which was the majority of the tribes, Judah, the, the kingdom of Judah was the, the two tribes most of the time. This, he was the last king. The last king, period. He, I will say it like this, King Zedekiah got it wrong. When it comes to being a good leader under God's authority, King Zedekiah got it wrong. That's our first example. Let's, let's look at our second example of David. In our second example of David, we'll spend a little bit more time in Scripture on this, but I want to give you a little bit of background on David that you probably know mostly about. David was anointed king of Israel somewhere around the age of 13. Now keep in mind, we're doing this backwards. We were at the end of the kingdom of Judah, which had already split from Israel. We go back now, let's look at the beginning of Israel, who already had a king in Saul. Now, we know that Saul was anointed by Samuel, stood head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel, but did not follow God. He failed in much the same way that Zedekiah did, because he said, I, I, I'm in control. I, I'm the guy. They all look at me. They picked me. Everybody in Israel looked at me and said, he's the tall one. So those of you, those of you in here that are tall, just being tall is not the only qualification. There's got to be something else. But David was the second king and arguably Israel's greatest king, he gets anointed by Samuel at the age of 13. Now, I kind of laugh about this. And again, I know we're involved in different times. But I have a 13-year-old, and I love him, and we have a blast. But there's no way I would you know, anoint him. Okay, you're a king of the woods, fam. I'm going to let you know. You're going to get everything we have. And if I did say that, he'd probably look up and say, Y'all don't have anything. Yes, but it's all yours, son. <laughs> Someday it will be all yours. But a 13-year-old being anointed king, and it was kind of one of those touchy situations when, when Samuel anointed David king, because they still had a king. So I don't get the impression that David fully understood, or even Jesse, his father, or his brothers fully understood, what's, what's really taking place here? But there was something, there was, they knew something. Okay, I'm being anointed king. Around the age of 13, approximately. Fast forward two years, he was around the age of 15, when he killed Goliath. Huge deal, killing Goliath. Now, we're, we're going to jump into uh, 1 Samuel 18, 6-9. If you want to turn to that, you can. I've got most of it on screen. But after David killed Goliath, and I'm not reading from the scripture yet. It's, it's up there. Stick with me. If anytime they would come back into town, when, they had, when Saul, let me back up, David killed Goliath, they come back into town, they're riding into town, and every place they would go, they would hear this. And here's where I want to read from the scripture. Um, this is 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9. Get to it on my end. 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9. When the men were returning home after David had killed Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. And most of us know how this goes. David has slain his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. This displeased him greatly. And he said this, they have created David, credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? So Saul already is now irritated. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So, you may look at Saul first and say, well, Saul, that's awfully petty. You were sitting in your tent. There was a nine foot, eight foot, 
Seven foot, take your pick. If he was only seven foot and he looked like Shaq, he'd look nine feet. Heck, I stand next to Isaiah and I think, oh, he's like Goliath. Whew. It doesn't matter. He was huge. I mean, the stories talk about, we're talking about potentially a nine foot tall human with a sword and a spear. And, and I don't mean someone clumsy. This guy looked like a beast. But Saul was sitting in his tent waiting for someone else to kill him. And now he's upset that David's getting all the praise when David literally did all the work by himself. What a beautiful picture we have of David saying, God will deliver me. God will help. What a beautiful picture. But if we're not careful, we read this about Saul and go, <laughs> Saul being kind of petty. He should have been thankful. I have a question. How many times have you thought your blessing should have been a little bigger than what you got? I have a good friend, and this is a, this is a hard story to remember, that lost his family, lost his career. And when I began to look back at all of our interaction, all of our interactions around his career, anytime he would grow in his job, and he had a tremendous job, did well in his field, he would always say, yeah, but it should have been better. So-and-so got more than I did. And I'd look at him and go, well, yeah, but, I mean, so grow into that. Take this is where God has you. And he'd kind of give the lip service. Yeah, yeah, all right. But before we get to finger pointing at Saul, let's step back and say, wait a minute, how many times have I said, well, God, you blessed me, but they got more than I did. Be careful. That's when you begin to develop a sense of ingratitude that you know better than God. And we got to be careful about that. That's a whole other rabbit trail that we could chase. So Saul looks around and begins to say this, yeah, how many times, like I said, how many times have you thought this? So shortly after this passage of Scripture, we learn that Saul tried to kill David. With his spear, he, tried to, he threw it at him across the palace and tried to hit him. So immediately, David has to go into survival mode, and he goes on the run. So again, let me give you some historical context. If you grew up in Sunday school, you already know some of these details. If you didn't grow up going to church... Here's a quick overview. David goes on the run with an army of men. Now, these are men that were had seen David as, and what a, what a great leader, what a great warrior. We, we want to be part of your... Well, they were in the kingdom of Israel. David goes on the run. They find out, or he says, hey, I need some people to protect me because Saul's trying to kill me. And so, you got to remember, he's a pretty popular dude. So he's on the run, and David is a fugitive. He's hiding, and at times, he's fighting. Which brings us to 1 Samuel 24, verses 3 through 4. Now, as we pull this up, remember this. He was anointed king of Israel. He was told, or he began to feel the sense, you're going to be the king. You're going to be in charge. 1 Samuel 24, verses 3 through 4. This is Saul chasing David. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way where he had been chasing, and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself, and David and his men were far back in the cave. Let me back up just a minute. Those of you who have read the Bible through the entire length of the Bible, have you found any other reference in the Bible to someone going to the bathroom? No. Okay. Please, for just a minute, indulge me. You don't go, if you're a man, you don't go into the cave just because you got to go number one. That's all I'm going to say about that because it's important to the, the picture of he was in a vulnerable position in the cave. Okay? Now, I don't get this image of the cave as some little hole in a rock. It's, this has to be massive because the scripture says David and his men were far back in the cave. Even if it was only five men, this had to be a big cave. They had to be quiet. David sneaks up and cuts off a piece of his robe. Now, before he does that, imagine David's men who've been running from Saul for how long, who have been away from their families, and as they're seeing this, they're looking at each other going, yes, get on your phone, text your wife, we will be home by the end of the week. That's what they're thinking. David sneaks up however close he has to get to him. And again, get the image I said earlier. I'm not going to say it because we're on camera. But his clothes are laying to the side. He cuts off a piece of his robe and slinks back into the back of the cave and looks at his men and says this. And his men are probably looking at him going, are you kidding me? This would have been the greatest day in the history of Israel. This would have been one of the greatest days in your story, David. King Saul walks into the cave, 
No one knows you're in there. And come out of the cave. Here comes David with Saul's head. And he did it to Goliath. He cut off his head. He's holding his head. And everybody, if this is a Hollywood movie, the dramatic lighting, cue the music. We're talking about Gladiator. We're talking about Braveheart, all wrapped in one. It's awesome. And David says this. This is the day, or excuse me, the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. David crept up unnoticed, cut off a corner of his robe, and then looked at his men and said, I won't touch him. I can't. He's God's anointed. Keep in mind, Saul had been anointed king too. David was anointed king, supposed to be the second king of Israel. This thing is not coming to pass very quickly, but David spares his life. Now, this next part to me is important because David steps out of the cave. We see a little bit of the teenage boy in David, which I'm okay with. He steps out of the cave and maybe goes, Yoo-hoo! Hey, old man, it, I get the image that they had to be far enough away, but maybe the sound was echoing. But I got a feeling everyone... On Saul's side, which by the way, there were 3,000 men chasing David. Everyone in Saul's army sees David come out of the cave and they're looking going, oh, snap. What just happened? He's holding up a piece of his robe. And I want to look at verses 14 and 15 in this same passage. This is 1 Samuel 24, verses 14 and 15. And he, said, he basically starts by saying, I could have killed you. I didn't. I think he's also saying this. Remember when you loved me? Remember when I was the one that played the harp and soothed you? Remember that? And then David begins to, I, I got a feeling, begins to yell. Against whom has the king of Israel come out against? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. I don't think he's talking to Saul when he's saying this. I think he's talking at Saul and saying to God, God, I am not taking matters into my own hands. I am trying to do what you want. He never said, you know, Saul, I'm supposed to be the king. He never said that, even though he knew he was supposed to be the king. Keep going. Let's look at, sec let's look at 1 Samuel 26. Saul goes after David again, even though he had gone back to the palace and said, you're right, you're right, you're right, I was wrong. Saul comes back out again, 3,000 men. I'm wondering, you can put the scripture up there. Uh, this is 26, 6 through 9. Saul is asleep in the middle of camp, surrounded by his men. This is how a king slept. The king was in the middle, all the men surrounded him. Taking charge, here we go to scripture, taking charge, David spoke. Who will go down with me to enter Saul's camp? Abishai, one of the captains in his army, it says, Abishai whispered, I'll go with you. Let me give you the image that I have of Abishai. Anybody ever seen Tombstone? Anybody ever seen Doc Holliday? I'm your Huckleberry. He's saying, I'll go with you. Yeah, I'm tired of running. He's treating you unfairly. So David and Abishai entered the encampment by night, and there was Saul stretched out asleep at the center of the camp, his spear stuck in the ground near his head with troops asleep around him on all sides. And this is how they slept. Abishai said, this is it. This is the moment. God has put your enemy in your grasp. Let me nail him to the ground with his spear. One hit is all it will take. Believe me, I won't strike him twice. He's saying, I'll stab him through the heart, pin him to the ground, and whatever noise, whatever noise he utters out, everyone will wake up. And again, just like the cave, you'll be standing there and you'll be the hero. But David said to Abishai, don't you touch him. I, and I got a feeling it wasn't, I don't know if it was or not, but I think of the angst that we all go through, and maybe I'm thinking of it out loud where David experienced it internally quickly. I can't touch him because God anointed him king. He anointed me as second king. I can't take matters into my own hands. And he says, don't, don't touch him. Who can lay a hand on God's anointed and come away unharmed? So once again, David slinks back out and goes about his business. 
Here's what I believe David was saying. And if you'll put this on screen next. I believe David was saying this. I will not violate the will of God to gain the promises of God. God's will, God's way, and God's timing. I don't know about you, but there's times I hear that and I think, okay, God's will, God's way, God's timing. Could you do it another way? Because this one isn't comfortable. This one isn't easy. It, it keeps going a little bit for David. In Psalm 25, put that on screen. What we see is something David wrote that I believe he drew on his entire life. I've got this on my computer in my, at my desk. My daughter Harper, who was sitting over there earlier, had written this out because I had said it was something about it being one of my favorite scriptures. I'm paraphrasing this a little bit. But I want you to think of that moment where David's saying, I can't violate God's will to gain His promises. God, this is your way, your will, your way, your timing. In you, my God, I put my trust. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. God, show me your ways. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are my God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. I believe it's possible that David could have stood on, on the, in the field when the lion and, and the bear were attacking his sheep and said, God, my hope is in you all day long. I believe he could have stood on the battlefield with Goliath and said, God, my hope is in you. All day long. We, I know that's not part of the passages that it says that David said out loud. But David wrote this. It was in him. It's very possible this is what he's having to continue to say. God, you promised me my hope is in you all day long. If we... David, we know this. David did not want to be in this situation. But he knew God was still leading him. If we look at... Uh, you don't have to dive into these scriptures with me. But if we look at 2 Samuel... Chapter 1, David hears of Saul's death. Now, it's interesting how he heard of Saul's death. He heard of Saul's death through someone coming up and telling him about it. And the person who told him how Saul died lied to him. Saul died because he took his own life. They were being overrun by the Philistines in battle. And this is, you know, sometime after that he had tried to kill David both times. They're constantly at war with the Philistines. The, the Philistines were overrunning them. David or Saul told his armor bearer, I need you to kill me. I'm wounded. I won't survive. Kill me. Saul's armor bearer couldn't do it. Saul fell on his own sword and took his own life. Then Saul's armor bearer took his own life. He had lost his sons. He lost his life, which means David lost his king. And he also had lost his best friend, Jonathan, who he probably hadn't seen in years. But when this messenger came and told David, Hey, I want you to know I killed Saul. I saw him running. I killed him. You know what David did? How dare you lay a hand on God's anointed. Take him and put him to death. And he killed the messenger. Because he said, you're not going to touch God's anointed. I will not take matters into my own hands. We go to 2 Samuel 2. David is anointed king of Judah. One tribe. It's been seven years since David was anointed king. He's now anointed king of Judah. Ishbosheth is anointed king of Israel. And Ishbosheth is one of Saul's descendants. David didn't go attack Israel. David didn't send spies. He didn't send a covert mission out to go take out Ishbosheth and then go, oh, I don't know how that happened. Maybe we should just unite forces and now we're all together as one. No, he, he left them alone for seven years. And then two young men, and this is 2 Samuel 4, verses 9 through 12, and we'll have that on screen. Two young men named Baana and Rechab, and if you say that differently, good for you. They confront David regarding Ishbosheth's death. They come to him and tell him, guess what we did? We went in, we snuck in, we killed Ishbosheth. Good news, David, you're now the king. Notice David's response. David answered Rechab and his brother Baana, As surely as the Lord lives who has delivered me out of every trouble. As surely as the Lord lives who has delivered me out of every trouble. When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man? 
Should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed these two messengers. And then you know what he did? He took the person who was put on the throne in Israel wrongfully and buried him in a place of honor. I don't get the impression that David was just, man, just let me get my hands on the crown. Let me get my hands on the, on the throne. I don't get that impression. I get the impression that David had begun to learn, God, I cannot take what's mine unless you give it to me. Because if you don't give it to me, it's not mine. I can't do that. So he, t he made sure that he kept the place of honor where it was supposed to be. Now, put up 2 Samuel 5. Verses 1 through 4. And I'm, I'm going to read just the beginning of this in just a second. David becomes king over a united kingdom of Israel approximately 15 years after he killed Goliath and approximately 17 years after he was anointed king of Israel. For those of you that are wondering, when's my dream going to come true? God put a dream in my heart, a vision in my heart years ago. When's it going to come true? I got a feeling David was asking that. I get the impression that Joseph in the Old Testament was asking that. I get the impression the disciples were asking that same question after Jesus passed away because he said, I will return and we will go to a place that is wonderful where there is no pain, no sorrow. God's timing is not really our timing. And I know it's frustrating. I experience that. Sometimes on a regular days in a row, I'm like, okay, God, I would like for this business proposal to move forward just a little faster. Okay, God, I'll trust you. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'll trust you. So we see this, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, and I'm paraphrasing, have mercy on us, you are the rightful king of Israel. They basically abdicated themselves to David before he ever had the crown. Before he ever had the crown, he became the most powerful person in the room. I probably should have named this sermon, what do you do when you're the most powerful person in the room? You may be thinking, well, but yeah, but you're in the business world. I'm just a dad. I report to seven bosses. I'm the newest person in the company. And we're a small company. They're not going to hire anyone else for two or three years. Well, you did say you're a dad, right? When you think about the most powerful person in a room, it's a dad and his children. Who's got the authority? How do you use it? Look what David did. David basically said, I'll make a covenant with you, Israel. We will become one united kingdom and we will rule together. I know I got to be in charge, but we're going to do this together. What do you do when you're the most powerful person in the room? Well, David got it right. Zedekiah got it wrong. David got it right. And we see one more example of it. A thousand years later. And I know immediately if you grew up in church, you're thinking, oh, a thousand years later. Yep, we always come back to Jesus. It's kind of like if you're in Sunday school and they ask a question. If you're a kid, just throw your hand up and say, Jesus, there's a good chance it's the right answer. Um, if uh, when I was in school, if there was a literary question thrown out, I would raise my hand and say, Ralph Waldo Emerson. There was a good chance it might have been the right answer. But we're fast forwarding to Jesus, but not his death on the cross. If we look at... Catch up to my notes here. If we look at John chapter 13, and this won't be on screen, I'm going to give you, if you're taking notes, John 13 verses 1 through 3. They're in the upper room. This is before the crucifixion. He's eating with all of his disciples, the 12 men who had walked closest with him over three and a half years. And the Lord had already put, the scripture says this, verse 3, everything was already under Jesus' power. He had already put all authority under Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate authority. Jesus does something that blew them all away. If you know the story, you know that he begins to take off his robe down to just a cloak. He goes and puts a towel around his waist and he goes to get a water basin. He's going to wash their feet, right? Well, imagine, imagine what the disciples are starting to go, whoa, no, 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 no. You are Lord. You do not wash our feet. We wash yours. Now, if you've never thought about this, what's the significance of washing feet? Well, we wear shoes. 
Imagine not wearing shoes, but but possibly just wearing sandals, open-toed, or maybe they're closed-toed, or wrap your feet in cloths. I know ladies go to get pedicures and get a foot massage and stuff like that. And I'm not going to lie. I've had a foot massage. I've never had a pedicure. I've had a foot massage, and they are awesome. They feel so good. But can you imagine giving someone a foot massage or washing their feet who has been walking in the desert in the hot sun for three and a half years? I don't know how often they bathe. I don't know how often they you know, cleaned up. I know what we use now for perfume and cologne is we take a shower, we put it on to smell good. Back then, they put it on because they smelled bad and they wanted the perfume to overcome it. That was the difference. So Jesus goes to wash their feet. He's the most powerful person in the room. And He leverages His authority to serve. Jesus takes His authority and says, I'm going to wash your feet. i got, I got to imagine Peter, who we find in Scripture was the most vocal. There might have been another one that was just as vocal. But i got to imagine they're running from Him going, How dare you? Don't you touch my feet. You sit down, let me wash your feet. And Jesus with this big, comfortable Knowing smile saying, but this is the model. Because up to this point in Scripture, it was not the model. Up to this point, it was the low man on the totem pole serving the man high on the totem pole. Jesus flipped that and said, no, you who are leading, you serve. I saw this growing up. My dad was a pastor, as, as Pop said. My dad was a pastor. He's now retired. Every function we had at the church, we were the last ones to leave. We were cleaning up. My dad's vacuuming. My dad's washing stuff. We moved. My dad only pastored two churches in almost 36 years of ministry. The first one was about 17 and a half years, which is where Pop talked about the uh, uh, first revival that he held. The second place we went to, I was already in high school. And I remember people looking at my parents going, hey, hey, hey after this, you know, the fellowship, after the potluck, which I know we don't have that much anymore. And Oh my word, can you imagine the backlash you'd get for having a potluck now? Um, anyway, uh, the, but after that, we're cleaning up. And people would look at my dad and say, no, no, Pastor, we got it. Brother Woods, we got it. And my dad would just kind of go, I know you got it. I got it too. We're helping together. And they just couldn't believe it. And I'm, in my head, I'm going, I thought this was normal. I thought when you were in this position, you, you just served wherever you needed, which is something I learned early on, even though I would say, I never volunteered for anything. I was voluntold to do a lot. Um, so, boys, that's where it comes from. But we see this, that Jesus stands and proceeds to do everything they don't want Him to do, which is serve them, wash their feet. In verses 12 through 17, Jesus lays out a command and He said, Now that you've seen me do it to you, you go and do it to other people. We run back through the list. Zedekiah got it wrong. David got it right. Jesus perfected it. Now, here's the interesting thing. Servant leadership is something that is really, really new in our culture. I hear it all the time in the business world. If any of you, you are constantly in that world and you're working with teams and you're in any form of leadership, you may hear that. About, oh, we got a servant leadership is something we need to model. Servant leadership is something we need to do. This needs to be something that, that we have. The world did not invent servant leadership, but there are books on it. And I will tell you, I've got two of them. They're pretty good. They're a whole lot better when you read the book and you cross-reference it with the Bible and you begin to say, wow, okay, I see this. Jesus modeled this. It means sometimes you got to take a back seat every once in a while and say, okay, God, I'll let you handle this. I know how it should go, but you don't have an open door to say anything. And instead of kicking the door down, you feel God saying, hang on, let me handle it. You know what happens when God handles it? Your faith grows. There's something that happens in you that goes, okay, God, you're better at this than me. You've put me here. I'll serve you. You steer me through this minefield and help me do this. So how do you model leadership and authority? Do you do it like Zedekiah? Do you do it like Saul? Or do you do it like David and like Jesus did? You may be thinking, I'm not really in, really in an authority position. Well, let me run you through a list. You're in an authority position if you're a business owner, an executive, a department head, a middle manager, 
If you're a coach, if you're a teacher, you're in an authority position. If you're a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a big sister, a big brother, a team captain, an administrative assistant, a shop foreman, a comptroller, etc., etc., etc. There is somebody that looks at you as an authority figure. You're an authority to somebody. So when you start thinking, well, I, I haven't really modeled this really well. If I change overnight, all they're going to say is, ha, ah, give him time. He'll swing back the other direction later and he'll be just as big a jerk as he always was. But what an amazing testimony when they don't see you swing back and they come walking up and going, hey, boss, uh, you changed about six months ago. What happened? And you're able to say, this redneck from Oklahoma and Texas threw something out. I thought he was crazy. But then God began to show me there's a better way to be a leader, which is to be a servant. So if you're wondering, how do I do that? Well, here's the first things first. Surrender to God's authority in your life first. Look at God and go, okay, I've kind of been fighting you on some things. God, I want you to have first place in my life. And after you do that, it will make you considerably more effective in serving those whom you have authority over. Remember, these can be people in the work world. These can be people in a volunteer setting. These can be people on a team. These can be people in your own home. We are an authority in some level. And as you grow and get older, you got a feeling your goal is to become an authority and a leader over more. Well, if you don't get it right now, you're not going to magically be blessed with this skill later. So, as we close, I want us just to do something. I made the joke as we were uh, game planning before service uh, that we're going to sing a song that comes out of a hymn book. If you don't know what that is, it's a book that used to have a lot of songs we sang in church called I Surrender All, but it's something that we all know. You don't have to stand. You don't have to close your eyes, but you can do any of that you want to do. But I want us to sing through this with the thought of, okay, God, I'll, I'll surrender some of what I want to get what you want. Because if you have my best interest in mind, what you want is better for me than what I want. You made it to the end of the message, and now what? Is God leading you to make a change? Are you needing a good church home where you can grow and help others grow as you fulfill your part in the body of Christ? Then we invite you to join us at All Nations Church on Sharer Road in Tallahassee, a multicultural church founded on the truth of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Our Sunday morning service is at 1030 and Wednesday night service at 7, plus youth group and kid power and small groups and more. For more information, visit our website, allnationstallahassee.com.